Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Olbom, an old man, a young man, and life's greatest lesson. The last class of an old professor took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesday, began with breakfast, and the subject was the meaning of life, and it was taught from experience, not from a textbook. So in this really unique class by this really unique professor, there was no grades. Um, there was an oral exam you didn't have to worry about. You didn't have to worry about uh, questions or studying too hard. Um, but you were required to perform some physical tasks now and then, some random ones, like you might need to lift the professor's head to a comfortable spot on the pillow or place his glasses on the bridge of his nose or uh, kiss your professor goodbye and uh, when you left, they'd earn you extra credit. So, a little bit different. Very different. No books were required, but many topics were covered. Love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally death. The last lecture was brief, only a couple of words, and the graduation was actually the funeral. So, although no final exam was given, uh, you were expected to produce a very long paper on what, what you learned. And that very long paper on what was learned and what was taught is this book, Tuesdays with Murray. Um, and as it's colloquial uh, right now around the globe and very well known, over 15 million copies have been sold so far, which might actually be lowballing itself. So this book, Tuesdays with Maury, it is that story of a, an old man named Maury, Maury Schwartz, a young man named uh, Mitch, Mitch Album, the author. And uh, I suppose if when we first did Juggernaut Month um, back in season two, this met the strictest definition in terms of Juggernaut was number of reviews on Goodreads. And this is uh, close to 900,000. So it's well and truly a jugger in that sense. Yeah, well and truly. And um, I think we've done a good job to get an a good episode out of this because at the mm. time I think we struggled to actually um, structure episodes like this in, Man, in I such read a way. This, I read this book three and a half years ago and thought, no, nah, we can't do an app on this. This is, I don't know, we won't be able to do it, but mate, you managed to pull it out. Yeah. Well, Maury, as you can imagine, uh, he was a pretty sweet old man. Think of like your favorite teacher, like a, a cute old guy, favorite professor, your favorite mm. sports coach, music teacher, mentor, um, and whatnot. So, uh, his death sentence, though, it came in the summer of 1994 with a really bad diagnosis. But Maury, you know, looking back at the time, he knew something was coming a lot earlier than 1994. Yeah, well and truly before the doctors gave him this uh, diagnosis, he knew it was up the day that he had to give up dancing. He'd always been a dancer. The music didn't matter. Rock and roll, big band, blues. He would try to dance to them all. But, uh, you know, as soon as this uh, the music came on, his eyes lit up, a blissful smile began, his Mate, his, his dancing skills could be questionable, but his enthusiasm could never be questioned. Uh, but then one day, uh, the dancing had to stop. He um, developed a bit of asthma. His breathing became labored. And what, he had this uh, uh, one time a cold burst of air hit him and he was left coughing and spluttering and choking and had to be taken to hospital. And that was the end of his dancing. And a few years later than that, he noticed he had trouble walking. So he began to see more doctors, more and more, and lots of them to find out what the hell is going on here. They tested his blood and urine and they put a scope up his rear to check his intestines, but they really couldn't find anything until one doctor ordered a muscle biopsy and took a small piece of his calf out. And uh, then from there, it brought on another series of tests. He was, uh, he was put in an electric chair of sorts, but uh, a good kind. It was testing his neurological responses. And um, what it uh, they discovered was he had uh, a... Oh, 
um, I wouldn't normally leave this to you, ameotroph- ameotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, it's a type of disease um, named after a famous baseballer um, and it's kind of the umbrella disease. If In Australia, we probably know it more as MND, motor neuron disease, the um, famous AFL footballer Neil Danaher, they do the, the big freeze uh, every year where they send people down the slide into the uh, a trough of ice. And the in 2014, the Ice Bucket Challenge was to be raising awareness for ALS. Mm, yeah, so it's getting those news. Is, it's a big hit, obviously, as big a hit as you possibly mm. can because not only it's a death sentence, you are going to die, um, but the way you go out, if you see mm. people the way they go out, it's, it's really horrible. So when the doctor gave him the news, he said, you know, am I going to die? And the doctor said, yes, yes, you are. I am very sorry. So he sat there with his wife for two hours, asking a lot of questions, trying to get as much information as possible. As you can imagine, his wife was really struggling here and her mind was was running. She was asking questions like, how much time do we have left? How will we manage? How will we pay all the bills? But as they were looking for the answers, which weren't coming immediately, uh, the disease slowly took him over day by day and week by week. One day he was backing his car out of the garage, but one morning he couldn't really push the brakes to full capacity. So that was the end of his driving. He kept tripping, so he had to purchase a a cane. So that was the end of his walking freely. He used to go for regular swims at the YMCA, but eventually he could no longer undress himself. So that was the end of his swimming and uh, that was the end of his privacy as well. So ALS, it's like a lit candle. So it melts your nerves and leaves your body with a pile of wax. And that wax, it begins with your legs and works its way up. So you lose control of your thigh muscles and then you can't support yourself standing. You lose your control of your trunk muscles so you cannot sit straight. And then slowly it arrives uh, higher and higher to the point it gets to your throat. And then obviously you can't, uh, you start struggling to to breathe. And then to your tongue, you lose control of your tongue and so forth. So Mm. before... Uh, you know that that wax has really melted your whole body and you you've lost all functions yeah so whilst your uh, brain and your soul is probably still perfectly awake and intact you're kind of imprisoned in inside this limp husk your body can't do the things that it used to be able to do your body can't really do anything in fact the unique thing here is the professor he made a profound decision here and this is really where the crux and the the uh, the inspiration comes from this this old man who went through this horrible experience he asks himself a question, right? Do I wither up and disappear or do I make the best of my time that I have left? He asks himself. Yeah. He decided to make kind of this, his final project here, the center point of his days. Uh, everyone is going to die, obviously. He just knew that his was uh, probably a more definitive endpoint than most and he decided to kind of open himself up to being researched. He was like a, a human textbook. He was saying, everyone, come in, um, come and study me, come and see this slow and patient demise, watch what happens to me, learn with me. Uh, and he was saying that like Mori is basically on this this bridge between life and death and he Mori was able to narrate the trip for other people. And Mitch was his student. So every Tuesday they met and and took these classes and um, took the lessons from Mori for, to pass on to the rest of us. And on the first Tuesday, it started with, with Mori um, speaking to Mitch. She said, you know, Mitch, now that I'm dying, I'm becoming more interesting to people. People see me as a bridge. I'm not as alive as I used to be, but I'm not dead. I'm sort of in between both. And I'm on this last great journey here and people want to tell me what to pack. 
Now, Mitch, he was probably thinking a fair bit about himself at this point, and he started, as he looked at his old professor, he started asking himself some pretty deep questions. He was wondering, you know, what happened to me? Once I promised I'd never work for money, that I'd join the Peace Corps, that I'd, I would live in beautiful, inspirational places, but then he'd been stuck uh, working in Detroit for 10 years at the same place, using the same bank, visiting the same barber. You know, the computers and, and mobile phones and technology that had come along had made him more efficient, but that didn't actually free up his time as he thought. It just made him work harder. He was writing boring articles about people he didn't give a shit about and didn't give a shit about him. He was no longer young. He was kind of uh, he was kind of aging out of where he used to be the young hotshot. He was kind of now one of the sort of crusty old blokes uh, in the corner, and he was just wondering, what the hell happened to me? Yeah, well, he's not really pondering any questions about the meaning of life and <laughs> no. you really are forced to question your values when you're in front of someone who is looking at death uh, mm. straight in the face here. So, this was the experience Mitch was going through. But then, you know, Maury said dying, uh, he said suddenly to snap him out of his, his train of thought. It's the only one thing to be sad over. Living unhappily is totally something else. Mm. So many of the people who come to visit Maury and the ones he's experiencing every day, you know, despite Maury going what through he's going through, um, everyone else is actually more unhappy than he is. Mm, yeah, exactly. Dying is obviously something to be sad about, but living unhappily, you know, for one thing, uh, the culture that we have, it doesn't make people feel good about themselves. You know, we're teaching people the wrong things. Um, but Maury is saying like the, the culture is there, but you don't have to buy into it. You can actually create your own. Most people can't do it, but the ones that can, they're going to live a totally different life. A lot of people out there are buying into the wrong parts of the culture are much more unhappy than Mori because Mori might be dying, but he's really surrounded by a lot of loving and caring souls at this stage and not many people out there uh, can say that. And even though this is coming from Mori who can no longer do all the things he loved, including dancing, swimming, bathing or walking, he couldn't answer his door, he can't dry himself after the shower or roll over in bed, you could ask yourself, well, how could this guy be so accepting? Yeah, Mitch was watching him struggle with a fork. He tried to pick up a piece of tomato, but he missed it the first couple of times and it slid off. And Mitch was thinking it was a bit of a pathetic scene. But at the same time, Maury was there just so, you know, he was present. It was almost serene. He was so calm. He was just enjoying everything that was going on, even though from an outsider, it looked like an awful experience. Maury said, you know how I'm going to die? I'm going to suffocate. My lungs, because of my asthma, will not be able to handle the disease. The disease is moving up my body, this ALS. It's currently got my legs. Soon it's going to be at my arms and hands. And then when it hits my lungs, I'm sunk. But you know what, Mitch? You mustn't be afraid of dying. I've actually had a good life. And we all know we're all going to die. It's going to happen. And I've maybe only got four or five months. So you know what? Many people out there, they walk around with a meaningless life. They seem half asleep even when they're busy doing things they think are important. That's because they're chasing the wrong things. The way you get meaning in your life is to devote yourself to loving others. As they were going through this uh, this first lesson, you know, this first meeting on a Tuesday, occasionally Murray, he'd have to stop. He'd have to go to use the bathroom. And the process took a fair amount of time. He, At this point, he had an aide or a, an assistant named Connie. She'd wheel him to the toilet. She'd lift him out of the chair and she'd kind of support him as he urinated uh, into a beaker. And then every time he came back, he looked physically exhausted just from this simple thing of standing up and holding himself for 30 seconds. 
And Maury said, you know what? I think the day is coming where someone's going to have to wipe my ass for me. <laughs> he said, that's something that, that really bothers him because obviously that was the, the ultimate sign of dependency, someone having to wipe your own ass. Um, but he says, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to peace with it. I know it's coming, so I need to be able to accept and I need to enjoy the process. Oof. Of it's like you can imagine it being the worst thing in the world, mm. right? That dependency, but bloody hell, enjoy it. <laughs> Interesting. What, what do you mean, enjoy it? But Morris said, you know what? I get to be a baby one more time. That's one way of looking <laughs> at it, right? <laughs> you know, you get looking, and he said, I've got to look at life uniquely now, right? I've mm. got to see things in a new light if I'm going to go out in the wrong way. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop this thing. I mm. can't stop the disease, I can't take care of the bank accounts. I can't take care of the garbage, but I can sit here with my dwindling days and look at what's important in my life and look at things in a new perspective. Mm. And I do have the time and the reason to do that. As the Tuesdays went on, as Mitch kept coming back to see Myri each Tuesday, he started seeing signs of the disease's gradual progression, that slow uh, you know, wax melting of his, his whole body kind of succumbing to the, the disease. His fingers, they at this point, worked well enough to write with a pencil, but he couldn't lift his arms past his chest. Uh, and if, even though he was writing, uh, nobody else could really understand it except for Mari. So he could just sort of make out a few little scratch marks at this point. Mitch asked, hey, mate, do you feel sorry for yourself? And, uh, and Mari said, sometimes in the mornings, that's when I mourn. I wake up, I feel around my body, my fingers, my hands, whatever, I can still move. And, you know, you might notice last week I could move my left hand and then today I can't. So, you obviously be really scared about that. And I do mourn um, about what I've lost. I mourn this slow, insidious way in which I'm dying. But then I stop mourning just mm. like that. I give myself a really good cry when I wake up if I need it and then I move on. He says then once you've got over that, then he concentrates on all the good things he still has in life on the people who are coming to see him, on the stories he gets to hear, and then maybe if it's Tuesday, he knows Mitch is going to come and see him. Um, and he says that, you know, I don't allow myself any more self-pity than just that little bit each morning, a couple of tears, and then I move on and focus on the good stuff. Mate, you got to have a think about all the people, probably including ourselves to mm. some extent relatively, right? Like you spend so much time of your waking hours feeling sorry for yourself about the, the hand the world's given you, and you just got to... Comp- yourself to Mori here, right? Like he mm. just, he wakes up, he has a few tearful minutes and then he gets on with his day and if he can do it with such a horrible disease, like this, this uh, the, the melting of the wax, compare that to the rest of ourselves and put things in perspective about our self-pity. Mori said, it's horrible to watch my body slowly wilt away to nothing, but it's wonderful because I get the time uh, that I get now to say goodbye. And he says, you know, not everyone is so lucky. And Mitch was just thinking, did, did this guy just say lucky? <laughs> the Tuesdays rolled on and now they're speaking about death. Um, he said, let's begin with an idea. Everyone knows that everyone's going to die, but nobody believes it. This isn't, you know, we think that we would do things differently. If someone said you're going to die, uh, you know, you've got X number of months left, we say we do things differently. That's coming. Everyone is going to die at some point, but still we don't really do things differently. So there's a good approach about this. To know you're going to die is to be prepared for it any time. That's the way to go about it. And that way you can actually be more involved with your life while you're living. He says that uh, Mori now, he does what the Buddhists do. He says that uh, every day you've got to imagine there's a little bird on your shoulder and every day you ask that bird, is today the day? 
You know, am I am I ready? Am I doing all that I need to do? Am I being the person I want to be? And at that point, Maury sort of turned off to his shoulder and asked, is today the day that I die? Yeah, he's borrowed from a lot of religion, this. I think um, back in the day, Asha, we both used to have an app, Days Days Left to Live. Mm-hmm. I was intending to download that app again after reading this book. The app that I had, they didn't update it for the new iOS, so it broke. So, I oh, don't really? have that app anymore. It's pretty alarming if it just glitches and... The, the, the app lip, dies. says the birdie says today <laughs> but the truth is once you learn how to die you learn how to live this is a concept that's come up in a lot of the deep books that have stood the test of time and he repeated it just so mitch got the point you know what once you learn how to die only then you can learn how to live mm. and he sm- smiled and realized what he was doing like any good teacher or mentor to make sure that you know uh, mitch absorbed the actual point mm. here Mitch asked, you know, Maury, did you think about death much before you got sick? And Maury said, no, nah, it was just like everyone else. Uh, he remembers telling a mate once that I'm going to be the healthiest old man you'll ever see. That's why he was always swimming, he was dancing, he was doing all these things. But then Mitch was saying, you know, why is it so hard to think about dying? And Maury says, it's because we're walking around like we're sleepwalking. We don't really fully experience the world. Uh, because we're half asleep, we're doing things automatically. We're doing things we think that we have to do. It's not until like actually facing death, like getting that diagnosis from the doctor that actually changes that. Yeah, because if you really listen to that bird on your shoulder every single day, if you accept that today could be the day and you mm. could die at any time, then you might do things a bit differently. Now, in the case of Mitch, in the case of probably a good chunk of us, you might not be as ambitious as you are because the things you spend so much time on, all the work you do, um, put in perspective and context, it might not seem as important because you might leave a lot more space for the more spiritual things rather than all these materialistic things. Yeah, the materialistic things, uh, aside from a very, very brief fleeting moment, they don't actually satisfy us. Whereas the long-term uh, loving relationships we build, they're probably the things that we take for granted, but they're the things that matter most. He nodded toward the window to the sun streaming in and said, Mitch, mate, you see that? You can go out there. You can go outside any time. You can run up and down that block and go crazy. You know what? I can't do that. I can't go run. I can't go outside. I can't be out there because I've got the fear of getting more sick than I am now. But you know what? I That window there though, I appreciate the actual window more than you. I look out the window every day. I notice the change in the trees, how strong the wind is blowing. It's as if I can see time passing through the window pane because I know my time is almost done. And that's again when Maury just looked that little bird on his shoulder and says, is today the day, little birdie? Is today the day? On the sixth Tuesday, they speak about emotions. Here the small horrors of his illness were really growing. And when Mitch finally sat down with Maury, uh, Maury was coughing a lot more than he was previously. And the <coughs> cough, a bit like Astro there, was that deliberate? <laughs> Completely unintentional. Bro. There you go. Bit, bit worse than Astro's cough there. This one was dry, a dusty cough, shook his, his, his chest and made him jerk forward and a real violent you know, surge of coughing and then he finally stopped. Mm, that'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then Maury said, um, and then he just basically just sw- switched off from that moment and just jumped straight back into what they were talking about. And he said, you know what I'm doing now? I'm, I'm detaching myself from experience. It's another important thing that he'd uh, kind of developed is learning how to detach, 
you know, learning to do what the Buddhists say, don't cling to things because everything is impermanent. Um, detachment, it doesn't mean that you're just letting go of everything and nothing penetrates you. In fact, it actually means that you experience everything much more fully because you're able to take it and then move on. Yeah, there's uh, when we do the book, the Why Buddhism is True, uh, the the religion, if you can call it that, is uh, full of paradoxes and that being being one of them and detaching from emotion in one sense it's you know not living it but it's actually quite the opposite where you're living mm. it fully so take any emotion right so for example let's say uh, love for a woman grief for a loved one or say what Mori was going through at the time and that was fear and all the pain of mm. a deadly a deadly illness uh, slowly taking him out yeah, if you hold back on those emotions, if you don't allow yourself to go all the way through them, you can never get to the end point, which is being detached. You're too busy being afraid. You're afraid of the pain. You're afraid of feeling it fully. You're afraid of the grief that may come. You're afraid of the vulnerability that it may entail. But by throwing yourself fully into those emotions, by going deeply, going all the way through them, um, even to the point where it might feel overwhelming, like you're a bit over your head, experiencing uh, the pain, the love, the grief, experiencing them fully, that's a, the only point that you can then say, okay, I've experienced this, I understand, now I can detach and move on. Yeah, and it's actually like living. That's also what Brene Brown's um, mm. uh, Atlas of the Heart was all about is is understanding what emotion you're going through and being able to articulate it just so you can live it fully because when you learn how to live fully in these moments, again, you're learning how to live. So, Murray spoke about his most fearful moments and he went through ones, this fear, this was the emotion he was going through more than most of us because he had times when his chest was locked up in heaving surges. He said to Mitch, you know, that little coffin fit I had earlier, that's nothing compared to what <laughs> I had yesterday. Um, and he had these moments where you're coughing that hard, you're not sure if you're going to get that next breath back, right? Mm. Um, how scary would that be, Astro? Imagine coughing and you're like, yeah. and you're trying to, trying to breathe. Man, I've, I reckon I've done it just from like if you if you eat something too fast and something gets stuck in your throat and even just for that one and a half seconds where you start oh. to panic and think, fuck, there's something really something wrong going, going on here. here. That's Mori almost daily for not one and a half seconds but for a long period of time. Yeah, but so even in these moments, right, like he would feel that emotion that he's mm. going through, that's going and he's detaching to that point. He'd take uh, note of their texture, the moisture, mm. the shiver down the back, the quick flash of heat that went through the brain and then he was able to say, okay, this is fear. Mm. Pretty intense for you as well, but to step back and see that it's pretty insane. He says that he was kind of practicing this, I guess, because he wanted to die serenely. He wanted to die peacefully. He didn't want to die in a panic. That um, these coughing fits would obviously induce panic on anybody. But he said he 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 doesn't want to die like that, uh, like the panic, the fear, the the anguish, anything that's going on. He wanted to die uh, at least peacefully. He wanted to at least be able to say, okay. This is my moment. This is what I've kind of prepared for. Uh, I don't want this to happen, but I know that's going to happen, so I need to accept it and kind of move on peacefully. The next Tuesday that Mitch rocked up to was the seventh one this time, and Mario lost his big battle here. Mm. Someone was now wiping his ass. Mm. So he faced it with a typical brave acceptance of what he had to, to face with his disease. But this is a big one, right? Like, no longer being able to reach behind yourself is a big deal and that that conversation he would have had to have with Connie who was his lovely assistant of this limitation he had to ask her hey would you be embarrassed to do it for me of course she said no she's probably done it done it a bit part of her, her mm. role yeah and Mitch thought you know it's pretty typical that he he asked her um, you know it would take a bit of getting used to because it was this complete surrender to the disease you know the one thing that he 
kind of want to hang on to was wiping his own ass and he had to finally admit, okay, I can't do this one anymore. Uh, and because it was this very, obviously, very intimate, um, physical, personal thing, you know, and now it's kind of, everything's kind of gone from him. You know, going to the bathroom's gone, wiping his nose is gone, washing his own private parts, that's gone. So he's really dependent on others for everything he does. Yeah, so he was going through a lot of this through the ALS disease, but it is something that happens just with aging in, in general. And this is what he was speaking about that day, the fear of aging, which um, we've all got to some extent. We think that we're going to lose some sort of capacity or capability as we grow old. But he looks at it in a totally different perspective. He said, you know, all this emphasis on youth and everyone trying to sell that this is what you want to be, don't buy into it. Because I know what a misery being young can actually be. So, don't tell me it's so great being so young. He says all the kids that he sees with their, their struggles, their strife, their feelings of inadequacy, their sense of uh, that life was miserable, so bad that sometimes people can't don't want to go on anymore. Um, all these things that he says, you know, the youth, it's not they're not wise. They have very little understanding about life. Um, you know, who would want to live every day when you don't actually know what's going on? And he says that actually getting older is a really good thing. You should embrace uh, aging and sh- you should be enjoying all the things that you're developing as you go along. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting way to, to look at it. I'll probably look back on my youth. I feel like um, it's my theory and my, not Maurice, so maybe take it with a grain of salt. But I feel like <laughs> when you're younger, you have bigger peaks and troughs, troughs don't you? Mm. And I think um, the peak peak end moment rule, whoever came up with that, Dan, Chip and Dan Heath, uh, or probably get Kahneman. I was going to say he stole it off Kahneman. Yeah, who stole it off Kahneman. <laughs> um, you know, you look back and you remember the peaks. So that's maybe why we idolize it back then. Mm. But the actual average is probably much lower, mm. I think. Yeah, for sure. Your, your troughs are much worse and your peaks are much higher. So, you know, with age, you actually do... <laughs> Uh, and according, well, I'm on, on par here with uh, our man, Mori, because it is better as you grow older. Yeah, and Mitch was saying, well, but don't you envy the young because they're younger, they're healthier, they can do things. And he says, I suppose, I guess, I envy the, you know, being able to go for a swim or go to the health club or go to dance and mostly for the dancing because he loved it. But he says, you know, remember what I was saying about detachment? You know, you got to experience that envy. You get to see the kids running around in the street experience it, understand it, feel feel a little bit sad about it, but then you know, separate yourself from that and understand that you've got a lot of other greater things uh, outside of just that dancing. Aging, it's not just decay, it's also growth. If you stayed at 22, you'd just be 22. Um, if you're a 33-year-old, you're also a 5-year-old and a 37-year-old with that accumulated wisdom. <laughs> if you're a 50-year-old, you're all three of them. If you're 77 years old, you're all of those things at once, right? Mm. You've got a component in your body that can be a kid a wise adult or a wise grandpa. We're on to the ninth Tuesday and since the last visit, the nurse um, had inserted a, a catheter into his urethra to, to draw the urine through a tube into a bag that sat at the foot of his chair. His legs are needed constant tending to. Unless his um, uh, feet dangled near the foam pads, it felt like someone was poking him constantly. Mori would have to ask visitors to lift his foot and move it just an inch to move it around a little bit or adjust his head just so that it would fit into the pillows. Can you just imagine at that point where you're not even able to move your own head? On the 10th Tuesday, they started speaking about marriage. He said, marriage, you know what? Everyone's always got a problem. Some people got a problem getting into it. Some people got a problem getting out of it. Um, and... Probably our generation, Astro, we struggle a lot with this sort of thing. And uh, it's pretty weird that uh, marriage in general is is getting more and more, I guess, uh, uh, well, less, 
what's the word for putting on a pedestal? <laughs> less valued. <laughs> I'm a bit less articulate than Murray, even in uh, his last weeks. That's right. Well, we're saying like in even in today's culture, just as it has been through all of history, really, it is so important to find a loving relationship with someone because so much of the rest of the culture doesn't give you that. Um, he says that a lot of people today are too selfish to take part in a real loving relationship. You're too focused on yourself. You're too focused on your career or you're too focused on all these other things that you want to do. And then you know, some people will keep putting off marriage and never do it. Some people will rush into marriage. They'll go to the other end and then in six months later, they get divorced because uh, they don't know what they want in a partner. They don't know enough about themselves. So he's saying, how can you possibly know who you're truly marrying? It's a, it's a bit of a tough one. It's a pretty important decision to make in your life. Yeah, we say there's a lot of good things when it comes to marriage that can bring into your life, but but there's going to be days where things turn to shit. You're going to have really, really dark moments where demons come to roost. And um, think about the position Maury's in, right? Like mm. friends are great. Um, you know friends are going to be there here and there, but they're not going to be there that night where you're coughing and you can't sleep and you think, is this the day the birdie's mm. on my shoulder asking that's it? And, you know, you've got your wife or your, your husband or your, um, your, your married partner uh, they're just trying to comfort you and trying to be helpful and is always there for you no matter what happens. Yeah, Maury had met his wife Charlotte when they were both students. They'd been married for over 40 years um, and she was there for all those tough times, as you say. She'd remind him to take medication. She'd stroke his neck. She'd talk about one of their sons. They were kind of working together uh, as a team and often because they'd spent so much time together and because they'd truly understand each other, often it was just a simple glance or a simple look at each other and they just knew what the other was thinking and he could just get from her exactly what he needed. He learned a few rules that he knew to be true about love and marriage. He said, if you don't respect the other person, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Secondly, if you don't know how to compromise, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And thirdly, if you can't talk openly about what's going on between you and working on a relationship, then you're also going to have a lot of trouble. And fourthly, if you don't have a common set of values in life, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Mm. <laughs> Mate, marriage just sounds like a lot of trouble. <laughs> there's a lot in that, right? I suppose there's, there's just a couple of simple things that you need to do there and you can avoid a hell of a lot of trouble, I guess. There's four yeah. bloody big ones, mate. I don't really see... Well, I see a bit of respect and then it probably goes less and less likely in number two, knowing how to compromise and negotiate. Um, in that sense, it doesn't really happen that much. And thirdly, the big one you rarely see is people talking openly mm about their relationship, you know, mm. like uh, the emotions that might set between um, each other and and slaying the little dragons that might uh, be very uncomfortable to talk about, but you bring it up, you slay it, and that way you'd be much better off for it. Yeah, totally. Uh, and and Maury says, you know, you know, marriage, it's a, it's a vitally important thing to do. You're missing a hell of a lot of life if you actually don't give it a shot and don't try it. And obviously, you're missing a hell of a lot if you don't do it properly as well. And equally important is family. So let's talk about family. You see what? You see them all around me. He nodded to photos and bookshelves everywhere and Maury as a young man with his brother David and with his wife and with his kids and so forth. He said, in light of what we've been speaking about so far, um, family's becoming more and more important. He says, in fact, there is no foundation, no secure ground upon which people may stand today if there isn't a family around them. He's saying it's becoming even more clear the more he got sick. If you don't have the love, the support, the care that you get from family, you don't really have much at all. He says that, you know, love, it's supremely important. You need to love each other or perish. Family is what he calls your spiritual security. Knowing your family will be there out there watching for you. No one else is going to do that. And 
I'll tell you what's not going to do it. Fame, money, all the work. Mm. At the end of the day, when things are turning shit, those things aren't going to be there supporting mm. you. It's going to be your family. So raising one is, is really critical and it's something that you should want before it's too late, which is a bit of a dilemma that's happening in our generation. Yeah, most certainly. You know, people are probably thinking, "Oh, it's not a good time to have kids." I'm, you know, I'm just about to get this promotion, or I'm just about to get this investment to launch this new business. You know, we often see is having kids is something that's tying us down, that's holding us back, that turning us uh, into a parent is something that we don't want to do. But he says, really, there's no experience like having children. There's no substitute for it. You can't do it with a friend. Um, you can't do it with a lover. There's things that you can only get from having and raising a family. On the thirteenth Tuesday. They spoke about the perfect day and at this point, as he was getting closer to the end, the body was, um, well, Maury saw his body really just as like a mere shell. He didn't put it on, on uh, as such importance. He saw it as a container of the soul and uh, it was withering to useless skin and bones, um, which I guess in that sense made it a bit easier to, to let go. That's when Mitch, Mitch asked him, you know, what, what would the perfect day look like to you? What if you could, you know, be rid of this disease? You got one day. What would what would you do for that one day? And you could do anything here, right? You've anything. Got, you got Aladdin's <laughs> magic lamp. That's it. You'd have a, an or oh, well, some brains would go to hundred hundred of the most beautiful people in the world for an, the best food you've ever had. Uh, LeBron James, you could win win the um win the championship of NBA. There's a lot of things you could do on that perfect day, you right? Do. You could. What but Maury's, Maury's perfect day was very different to yours by the sounds of it. <laughs> Maury said, "You know, I'd get up in the morning." I'd do my exercises, I'd have a, a lovely breakfast, I'd have some sweet rolls and tea, I'd go for a swim, I'd have friends over for lunch, we'd talk about families, issues, we'd talk about how much we mean to each other, I'd go for a walk in the garden, I'd look at the trees, I'd watch the colours, I'd listen to the birds, I'd take in the nature that I haven't seen for so long now. Then in the evening, we'd all go together to a restaurant, we'd get some great pasta, we'd get some duck, we'd dance for the rest of the night, I'd dance with all the wonderful partners out there until I was exhausted. Then I'd go home and have a deep, wonderful, restful sleep. Jesus. <laughs> well, it's so simple, mate, Very that one. It's day. so average. It's pretty disappointing. It's probably something that either of you <laughs> we could do right now. That's right. That's right. You know, he wasn't thinking about uh, the things you were thinking about. He wasn't thinking about flying to Italy or going to meet the, the Pope or having lunch with the president or uh, having, you know, flying to Mars or any of these things. He just want to have a, his perfect day was most people's just normal average day. Maury told Mitch's story next. He said, um, I heard a nice little story the other day. It's of a little wave bobbing up in the ocean. It was having a grand old time. He's enjoying the wind and the fresh air until he noticed that the other waves in front of him, they were crashing against the shore. And my God, this is terrible, the wave <laughs> says. Look at what's going to happen to me. Those rocks right ahead of us. And then another wave came along and said, you know, why do you look so sad? And then this wave's like, you don't understand, we're all going to crash. These, we're just going to become nothing. We're just going to hit these rocks and that's it, we're done. But the second wave says, you know what? You don't understand. You're not just a wave, but you're part of the ocean. Maury died on a Saturday morning and his immediate family was with him in the house at the time when those who loved him just left the room for a moment. So they've been with him the whole time. They left just to grab a little coffee in the kitchen and it was the first time they hadn't been around him and that's when he stopped breathing mm. and he was gone. Of course. And Mitch says, you know, he probably did that on purpose. He reckons that he didn't want people to be there for that last chilling moment to witness that last breath for people to be haunted by it. Um, so he reckons that Maury, that was kind of his last uh, gracious act was just doing it when nobody else is around. 
So, mate, after toward the end of this book, I started tearing up. Mm. Did you? Oh, definitely. Mate, the first time, no. Mm. Three and a half years ago. This time, yeah, most lost two grandfathers this I year. I haven't cried. So, in, oh, yeah. yeah, it was right there. I haven't cried there. in a book, man, ever, I don't think. This is the first one I was actually tearing mm. up toward the end. Mm. So, it is so powerful. And 20 years after the publication, there's still the biggest message in the book really is giving is living. And it's more than something Maury said. It was his philosophy and probably his secret in the way he dealt with things. Think about like the day he got given the disease and the choice mm. he had. No self-pity whatsoever. He decided, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to use this to help others. And bloody hell, how many books has he sold and how many people has he helped now? Yeah, that's right. Even though Maury never read a word of the book that came to be, um, it's reached so many people. As, as you say, he gave his time. He opened up. He said all the things that he kind of had been thinking about, all the things he'd learned from his life. And so now that you know, these millions of people can learn from a bloke who's no longer around to teach us. So what is within reach is what Maury said all along, that one day, one glance at the bird on your shoulder and there's one question, is today the day I die? And one good response on the day the bird says yes. Yes.